Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 157, Gateway. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. We talk about Artemis quite a bit on this podcast. This is NASA's program to return to the moon sustainably under a new architecture. One of the key elements of a sustained presence on the moon is an outpost orbiting around it, called the Gateway. If you're like me, you may be thinking, is this like the International Space Station, but around the moon instead of Earth? It's actually pretty different. Not just the location, but the orbit is unique, the size, the elements, all framed within a new way of doing business. So here to describe the Gateway and what it is and what it has completed thus far is Dan Hartman and Laura Kearney. Gateway Program Manager and Deputy Program Manager, respectively, here at the Johnson Space Center. They're the ones leading the charge in building this from the ground up, not just the Gateway, but the program itself. So here we go. The outpost around the moon, known as Gateway for NASA's Artemis program, with Dan Hartman and Laura Kearney. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit by circle the red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Dan and Laura, thanks so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Good afternoon. Howdy. Hey, guys. I'm so excited to have you both on. Um, to talk about Gateway, I think a lot of people are curious on just what this thing is and how it folds into this grander picture we have called Artemis. But before we begin, I think what's exciting is that between the two of you, you have such diverse experiences here at NASA. So Dan, I'm going to pitch it over to you first, understanding a little bit about what you've done at NASA, a little bit about your background, who you are uh, as the uh, leader, the manager of this, of this new program we have here. Dan, take it away. Yeah, thank you, Gary. Appreciate you doing this. Uh, it's a great opportunity for uh, for Laura and I to describe what we've been up to for the last year and a half. <laughs> uh, let's see. I, I grew up in uh, the St. Louis area and moved down here, actually in the Clear Lake area, when I was 16 years old. Uh, my father got transferred, and so went to high school uh, in the in the JSC vicinity, and ended up going to Texas A&M University uh, and received an electrical engineering degree. Uh, what was cool about that up at Texas A&M is I got to work on a senior project that was actually one of the first remote sensing payloads that uh, flew on the on the space shuttle program. So we had a kind of a professor that was leading the charge, I guess, kind of like the PI, and he got a bunch of students together to to go figure out how to go fly this thing. And uh, we started the project off, and then uh, a couple of years later, as senior classes came through, they actually they actually flew the the device on the on the shuttle so that was pretty cool it got me really excited into space and so uh out of college i joined uh, mcdonald douglas for about nine years i did a lot of work with uh with cargo integration payload integration in the back of the shuttle uh, uh for for that for that duration and then in 1994 i joined uh, nasa and right on into the iss program and um geez up until about a year and a half ago uh I was in the ISS program. I was a uh, worked my way up to the uh, to the ISS vehicle manager, uh, the IMMT chairman, and uh, eventually the deputy program manager to both uh, Mike Suffordini and Kirk Shireman, And then was given the opportunity to come join the Gateway program, and it's it's been a 
it's been a fun ride ever since. <laughs> well, that's actually going to be part of the the story that I want to tell here is just that ride from when you uh, when you first became the uh, program manager for Gateway and just building that program from from the ground up. But Laura, first I want to pass it over to you because your experience is a little bit different, though I think your schooling might be a little bit of the same. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of the same. Uh, <laughs> actually, one of the few people I think that's a native Houstonian. So um, as, a, as a child, I spent a few years in New Orleans. My father was in the oil and gas industry. And so as a young child, I was there. But from the age of 10 on, I, I lived here in Houston on the north side. And and kind of funny, you know, we would drive often from North Houston down to Galveston, and I would pass through this Clear Lake area, and it never even dawned on me I had NASA sitting in my backyard. So, you know, unlike a lot of people at NASA, I was not one of those that said, I want to work for NASA and set that path ahead of me. Um, I also went to Texas A&M. I have a, a bachelor's and a master's in biomedical engineering, um, and I was coming close to the end of my uh, bachelor's degree, and I was seriously considering medical school when NASA showed up on the doorstep to hire biomedical engineers and it was honestly the first time I thought wow well that I could do that right and kind of come home to the area I grew up in and so that's how I landed here uh, like Dan I also started in the contractor community um, in the health and medical area I worked for Lockheed for a little while I worked for Krug Life Sciences um, for a little while and then I converted over to a civil servant in 2000 um, so I have really my background is predominantly in hardware development I worked operations a little while early on but it's really been in hardware development the whole time I worked shuttle mirror um, and then I moved into uh, the EVA world with spacewalking in 1997 um, and so I worked EVA suits from 1997 all the way through 2011 and I was able to kind of uh, ride the Constellation wave there. I was the project manager for the new suit development um, for Constellation and when that um, program was canceled I moved over to the Orion program in the crew and service module office. We took the the remaining part of the spacesuit from the Constellation program, and we moved it over to Orion. Um, so that's how I kind of moved into the Orion area. Um, but that was the first case I had of really spacecraft development was over in Orion in the crew and service module. So um, it's really it's kind of super. I, I love working with Dan because he brings in all the ISS ops experience, you know, and I, I kind of have the deep space development experience, and so it's I think it's working really well for the two of us. And that's what I love is this is both of you have this diverse experience that kind of adds to this program. So Laura, I want to lock in on yours for a second. Your your experience is what about um, your involvement with the deep space programs and with uh, human health and performance and all of that. What what skills are you contributing to the thoughts of how to operate and and build gateway from the ground up? Uh, well, you know I. You know, everything we do in our world, money is always very important, right? Hmm. Money's a resource, and you have to have uh, funding to be successful. But I learned very quickly in Orion that when you go into deep space, um, mass is as critical a commodity as funding actually is. And I think somewhat, you know, we got used to operating here in low Earth orbit where mass wasn't quite as critical. Um, so we... Orion had to kind of relearn how to get back into deep space. Um, 
again, mass and then just risk acceptance. You know, when you're on the space station, obviously there's critical systems there, but we can get a crew home in an hour and a half or two hours if we have to. Um, When you start taking crews back to the moon and beyond, um, these spacecraft have to be highly reliable because we can't get them home quite as quickly. And, and so I really learned a lot in Orion on, on how to make mass trades and how to make risk trades for uh, crew safety, crew survival, um, things like that. Very valuable. I'm hearing, I'm hearing money. I'm hearing mass. I'm hearing risk acceptance of some of these top considerations that you're thinking of for this new program. Now, Dan, p- passing it over to you, your experiences with International Space Station, with shuttle that you're bringing to Gateway. Sure. Um, I'll tell you a lot of a lot of hardware development. When I was uh, the the ISS vehicle office manager. You know, we had uh, seven or eight uh, elements sitting down at the SFPF and KSE going through various stages of integration and testing, getting them ready to go launch. And so how they would assemble uh, on orbit and and continue to fly as uh, individual spacecraft after each one of the assemblies, uh, I got a vast experience in that. You you really understand uh, anomalies and failures, uh, even when you test on the ground. And that can be a directly applicable to, you know, how the systems might react in space. Uh, and I'd tell you the other thing I, I think I bring to the table is, uh, geez, probably for the last 20 years, uh, just heavy, deep involvement with everything associated with the international partners. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, so, it's, so glad, it's so good to be able to carry that from ISS over to the, into the Gateway program, quite honestly. That's one of the main attractions uh, that I had to to come over and take the job. You know, working with uh, with the European ESA, uh, the Japanese, the Canadians, uh, and, and a little bit right now with the Russians. Uh, you know, I'll tell you that the actually the program managers that are on the gateway also have very identical heritage in the ISS program, hmm. and so they're bringing all that experience into this as well. And so we've really hit it off. We've got a great working relationship with the international partners. We're very close to signing the official formal MOUs that kind of sets in concrete the contributions and benefits that uh, we'll be able to provide to all the international partners. And as you know, it, it's, it's, it's what the international partners, you know, primarily are interested in is, is crew opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. So their contributions on Gateway will lead to direct flights uh, to the Gateway eventually of, uh, of those international astronauts. So it's just a that's just uh, one of the one of the bright spots uh, of taking on this job and being able to apply uh, what we've learned on ISS directly into this gateway program. This is fantastic, and I and I want to take that opportunity to lead into setting up just what this thing is. We've described kind of the, some of the thoughts and considerations and skills going into building it. Laura, I'll pass it over to you. From a very high level, what is Gateway? Well, um, you know, we are going to be, we call it an orbiting platform um, around the moon. We try to stay away from terms like space station because um, there are going to be some fundamental differences between the gateway and the space station. We are not nearly as big as the International Space Station, um, nor are we inhabited um, 24 hours a day, 365 days a, a year. So, so we have some fundamental differences, but we, we basically are going to be a habitation outpost that is around the moon, and we are there to provide services, a, a place for landers to aggregate, a place for Orion to bring the crew to, 
um, so that we have a, a sustained permanent presence around the moon and we can support the lunar landing missions. Hmm. Okay, so we have an idea of, of kind of what it is, imagining a smaller space station, not quite the same, um, I guess, elements of a space station, maybe a little bit smaller, definitely further away. Um, so, Dan, where is this orbiting platform around the moon? We're saying around the moon, but but where? Sure. We're, uh, in fact, in late 2023, uh, we're, we're on track to go launch our, our first, uh, actually two integrated elements, uh, the PP and the HALO, uh, into what we call a near rect- rectilinear halo orbit. And that's a basically uh, an orbit around the moon uh, that's, a, I'll say, a halo shape, uh, kind of gets within about a 1,000 miles of the, of the moon's surface and then kind of spirals out to about 40,000 miles away. And it's a very, very stable orbit, and, and which really means we use uh, less propellants, less attitude control, uh, to maintain how we fly. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a, like Laura said, it's a great staging point uh, for the Orion uh, spacecraft to come. Uh, the lunar landers uh, can aggregate at the, at the gateway and go down, conduct their sortie missions, and then come back up. And with our logistics resupply missions uh, out of our, our Kennedy Space Center friends, uh, they're going to both supply logistics uh, to the crews to bring up the EVA suits, uh, and eventually, when we expand the gateway a little bit further, uh, we're going to go from these 30-day missions uh, to 60- to 90-day missions. And so, as Laura said, we're not, we're not 24-7, uh, but we think as we go further, and the gateway will enable, I'll say, expansion capability. Uh, there are plans out there for, for kind of your Mars transfer module, uh, certainly technology demonstrations of those kind of systems. And so... Um, yes, we're 30 days early, uh, but we, we look to expand that because uh, I think the more time you have uh, around the surface, uh, the greater, the, greater the, the demonstrations of technology, the greater uh, understanding of, of reactions with the human body uh, in that environment. So uh, we, got, we got initial plans and then we got some forward thinking plans and, and we're, we're trying to make that happen. Absolutely. That, that practice is going to be absolutely critical. Now, you've mentioned a couple different elements, Dan, so I'll, I'll pitch it back over to you to describe kind of what these are. You mentioned HALO. You mentioned PPE. Can you talk about some of these elements that will make up what is Gateway? Sure. Uh, you know, and kind of a, actually the first two pieces are critically important. The power propulsion element is uh, actually being built by Maxar uh, and managed out of the Glenn Research Center. It is your power supply, and it is your attitude control for the for the entire Gateway spacecraft. So it has reaction wheels. It has the uh, uh, reaction control systems to maneuver the Gateway. And you know we want to conduct excursions around the Moon, go to different different areas around the Moon. And the power propulsion element is the device that's going to get us there. Mostly using what we a new technology of the of the solar electric power. So we're really looking forward to uh, to getting the, that. That element uh, tested and uh, delivered down to KSC. Uh, it also provides, like I said, huge amounts of power. Almost 50% of, uh, of the power that we have on ISS is going to be generated out of the power propulsion element. And so that, those two solar, ring, solar array wings are going to feed the, the entire stack of, of the gateway. So critically important, critically important. Uh, and it mates with HALO, which is a small uh, logistics outpost 
where we can house the crews early. Um, it has various docking ports on it that can that can accommodate both the lander and a logistics vehicle, as well as Orion. But on that forward port is where we will continue to expand uh, the capabilities, and we'll eventually put the IHAB there on the other end of the halo. Um, its primary function is, uh, you know, it provides some, some pressurized volume, some early utilization, which we think is critical. We've got some some early payloads on the power and propulsion element as well, but it is it's the uh, it's the nerve center, it's the command and control center for the for the whole gateway. So, our command and control processors, uh, the high level software, will be operating within the, within the Halo module. So, um, both of those elements are, are currently on contract in production. Um, both nearing the PDR time period, and like I said, we're gonna we're gonna put those two together down at KSC. They'll fly as one integrated package. Uh, gives us it offers us the opportunity to really go test these two elements together, and then we'll launch them in a, in a single rocket that we also are are very close to to awarding, and so uh, making great progress uh, on power propulsion element and the halo. Very exciting. Laura, Dan is mentioning um, some scalable opportunities here. We're going to do this first, and then we're going to do this later. Can you talk a little bit about that, what those phases look like? Sure. Well, we, um, we use the term initial capability and then a sustained capability. Mm-hmm. Our initial capability should be ready in the 2024 time frame, and it is um, the halo and the PPE that Dan mentioned um, along with the logistics element. So for those early missions, you'll, you'll see a halo and a PPE around the moon. Orion will come in and bring the crew, and the lander would have already been pre-staged there. So it's those elements together, um, halo PPE, the logistics module, and with then Orion and uh, the lander. And then as we move to the more sustainable, you'll see us bring in our international partners, our international habitat, um, the Canadian arm, uh, and then we have an element called what we're calling an esprit, which is basically um, like a refueling element. So we'll be able to refuel um, and extend the life of the gateway over time. Oh, wow. We're, We're hoping eventually too. kind of later in our timeline, we'll see an airlock. So we'll be able to do... EVA spacewalking out of the gateway as well. Very nice. So, so Laura, you, you, you said, I think the phrase was provide services earlier on when you're talking about what gateway is and how it kind of folds into Artemis. So you're thinking, you know, you got early stages, you got later stages. Can you describe a little bit more why we need gateway for Artemis? What does it provide for these lunar missions? Sure. Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of different ways to go to the moon. Um, you know, Apollo was one of them, and those guys were super smart and did a great job um, with the task they had at hand. Um, you know, and, but their objective at the time was to get there as fast as they could, you know, be the first there. And so their mission was very optimized. They went um, around the equatorial region, and the spacecrafts were, were very optimized for a specific job. Um, when we go back this time, we want to go in a more longer-term, sustainable fashion, and we want to be able to explore the entire lunar surface. Um, so what the gateway allows the overall Artemis architecture to do um, is have flexibility in where we can land on the surface 
and um, the ability to reuse spacecraft, where we already talked about the landers can kind of come and go from gateway. The ascent element, as it, as it comes from the moon back up to the gateway, we can actually reuse it several times. Um, so in the long run, it, it saves us money and just provides us a longer-term sustainable program. Wonderful. I want to I want to uh, take a step back here for a second because we've done a great job so far of describing um, your experiences and then what this gateway is. But I want to take it back to the start of the program. Dan, tell me that story from when you already said you had a lot of experiences with with international partners, and they said, Dan Hartman, we want you to build this uh, program from the ground up. Yeah, and wow, it was uh, it is truly from scratch you know i felt uh i felt pretty good about you know my my capabilities uh, certainly with the international partners and you know in and how to assemble a space station uh early on and so but i didn't know very much about the about the gateway uh and so um trying to just understand it and then and then trying to think of the people the right people that you you want to put in place to help you go manage this and so i will tell you you know you you are you early defined by the people. So our, our program office is uh, very small, very nimble. Uh, it's about 25 people. Um, the center, and quite honestly, the centers across the agency were, were very, very good to us and enabling us to kind of look over the various the directorates at JSE and at the other centers and really kind of, I say, pick our talent. And amazingly, it's a it's a, an incredible group of people, uh, a lot of diverse talent. Uh, you know, as as a lot of young people that we're trying to bring in, um, we got go getters. We call them five stars. Uh, <laughs> we we put we put some people in stretch positions, and you know, quite honestly, early on in a program, you can you have some time to go learn and and and, and fix things if you know if you if you need to do some mid course corrections. Uh, but we, we, Laura and I really took it to heart to try to bring in and, and mentor some young talent because, obviously, we want to keep this pipeline of of future leaders uh, going. So I will tell you, it, it, the, like I said, the, the ability to go reach across, uh, you know, human health and performance and the engineering directorate, um, the Orion program, uh, the EVA team, uh, we, were, we were just able to, to kind of hand select uh, the people to make this whole thing grow, this whole thing go, I will tell you as well, the, the human resources side at the Johnson Space Center just moved mountains uh, for us to be able to assemble this team fast and quick. And I'll tell you, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a one-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get this uh, ability to, to kind of hand handpick the, the folks that you want to work with, that have the talents that you need to carry out the program. Um, we all work hard. We, we joke with each other, we care about each other, and at the same time, we have a little bit of fun along the way. So very, very proud of the team and, and how we've been able to grow that uh, bottoms up. And I will tell you equally, Gary, that the, the talent that we have across the other centers has been amazing as well. And so you have the Glenn Research Center at the Kennedy Space Flight Center as well as at Marshall. And we do have pockets of, of other people that support us from, from other centers as well, but those three in particular – uh, we stay we stay uh, well tied together, and uh, it, it's just uh, it's just a, a marvelous team that we've been able to assemble. 
Wonderful. Laura, can you go into more detail about what these different elements are? I'm hearing, I'm hearing it's a small team, but what is, what is the team here at, at uh, Johnson Space Center focused on? And it sounds like you have some, some cross-center help. So we're working, we're working really across the nation here. What does that all look like? Uh, sure. Like, like Dan said, we're pretty small. Um, just, you know, kind of as an example, the Space Station Program Office has a, you know, a couple of hundred civil servants. Orion has around 60 civil servants. And like Dan mentioned, we're at 25. So, so what that means is we heavily matrix support, um, not only from JSC, but like Dan mentioned, from other centers. Um, and the way we are set up, uh, we'll just we'll use the terms level two, level three. We have a, a level two program, which is really about the integration across the spacecraft. Um, so we have a, a program planning and control team that makes sure we're watching our schedules and our budgets, and that the money is flowing the way it should. Um, we have a um, SENI organization that worries about the integrated spacecraft performance. So not only the gateway, but as our visiting vehicles like the lander and Orion come and go, they're worried about how that overall integrated spacecraft is is performing across our power systems, thermal systems, propulsion systems. Um, we have a vehicle systems office that worries about um, basically the down and in systems and how, again, the spacecraft performs. We have a, an SNMA office uh, to keep our you know, the crew, first and foremost, in our minds, make sure we're operating safely on orbit. Um, and then we have an operations and utilization office who um, are folding in very early the crew operational needs and, and how we're going to operate the spacecraft, again, a little bit differently than we operate space station, um, but also how we make the most of the ability to utilize it from a, from a research perspective. Um, so those offices are all here at the Johnson Space Center, sort of integrating across the overall program. And then we uh, talk about level three, and we really we call them kind of our hardware development projects. Those are the teams that are ultimately responsible for delivering the hardware and, and getting it to Kennedy Space Center so we can launch it. Um, the elements that Dan already talked to you about, our power propulsion element is led out of the Glenn Research Center. Their prime contractor is Maxar. Um, our HALO is, happens to be led at Johnson Space Center. Um, it is, our contractor there is Northrop Grumman. Um, our deep space logistics is led out of the Kennedy Space Center, and it was recently awarded um, to SpaceX. And then our EVA team, we, we've actually been asked to manage spacesuit development for the overall Artemis program. Um, it is managed out of Johnson Space Center. So um, as Dan mentioned, between Glenn, um, Marshall, Kennedy, and, and Johnson, we work across those four centers really to bring all of those elements together into an integrated spacecraft. How about that? Now let's, let's jump forward to, let's just start putting these pieces together here. Um, you talked about some of the first elements to launch. Dan, can you give me a sense of, of what we're planning right now in terms of how we're going to construct the gateway in some of these initial missions and how it's going to fit into, maybe give us a spoiler of maybe one of the early Artemis missions, some of the, the profile of what astronauts are going to do when they launch from Kennedy? Sure. 
Um, you know, we just we made a pretty significant change about uh, three or four months ago, where we initially had the PPE, the power propulsion element, launching, and then we would launch the Halo on a separate rocket and a separate tug, and they would do rendezvous and prox ops together and mate uh, in the NRHO orbit. Uh, we quickly found that we, we might have some schedule relief and, and quite honestly, uh, some risk reduction activities if we uh, integrated those two vehicles on the ground. And so um, mm -hmm. that is that is the plan. And so we'll launch those in the uh, September, I mean, uh, the November of 2023 time period is the plan that we're on. Uh, it will fly around uh, in this NRHO orbit. And, and like I mentioned earlier, we're going to have uh, two crew or two payloads uh, that we recently selected. We're kind of doing utilization a little bit differently than how we've done it on ISS. Uh, we have worked with the international partners to really go integrate uh, the, the the payloads and and kind of share the development and then also share the research uh, with each one uh, of the international part uh, international partner providers. And so. Uh, and we plan to do that not only on the outside, uh, but also on the inside with some of the shared payload uh, capabilities inside the halo. And so we'll be positioned. Um, if, if you talk about the, uh, you know, obviously we won't be there for the Artemis II mission. For the Artemis III mission, uh, we'll be in place. And, uh, you know, recently they kind of took Gateway off the critical path. Uh, but we think we have a lot to offer uh, in the Artemis III scenario uh, being a, uh, say, a relay station uh, for for the comm to and from uh, the moon and then to and from the to and from the Earth. And so uh, we hope to be major players in the Artemis III mission. Uh, obviously, we're working very, very hard to get it up there in time. And then as you carry on uh, with the Artemis IV, uh, with a lander coming uh, to the gateway, Orion coming to the gateway, that is right now the plans are that'll be the first time we actually aggregate uh, at the gateway and uh, take a lander down to the surface from there. Obviously, we'll need uh, the logistics resupply, and so that would also be another another piece of the hardware that comes up. Uh, all this is, you know, like I said, when we when we launch the uh, the PPE and the Halo, uh, our plans are to, to operate that out of mission control. Uh, we are trying to build in a, an extensive amount of autonomy, and so I don't think you'll see, other than the initial checkouts. I don't think you'll see a control room like you see in the MCC today for ISS uh, running 24-7. Uh, we're, we're trying to have the systems on board Gateway be as autonomous as they can. Obviously, if we have some anomaly or if we have something that we need to go investigate, we'll bring teams in. But uh, we'll, we'll check health and status uh, periodically, but we're, we're trying to set this thing up to, to fly on its own. And so... That's our goal. I'm sure we'll, we'll, learn, we'll learn as we as we proceed through this. Uh, but I think it's a great way uh, to go figure out how to how to live uh, or how to how to go operate around the vicinity of the moon. Yeah, how about that? That is kind of a different model of, of how to do things. There's a lot of there's a lot of pieces here. There's there's parts of the gateway. You're talking about landers. You're talking about Orion. Um, you you already mentioned a little bit about the operations, Dan, of how. Um, of how Gateway will be operated, kind of with these with these regular checks. But let's say we're in forward to an Artemis mission where Gateway Gateway is integrated into it. What does mission control look like? It sounds like there might be an Orion Orion control room and Gateway control room. Is how how is that all going to fit together? 
still still kind of formulating that. But okay. uh, like I said, when we ha- when we actually have crewed missions, that's that kind of gets you all hands on deck. And so um, I'm I'm pretty sure we as a gateway control center uh, will be staffed up as well as the the, the MCC for the Orion vehicles. Uh, what we in- intend to do as well is we're setting up our control centers for the I'll say for the for the Canadians with their robotic devices. We are giving them effectively end-to-end responsibility for all the robotic activity on board the gateway, and that includes um, a control center uh, that they'll have in Canada that'll be able to operate uh, remotely, uh, kind of like what we do on on ISS with the SSRMS. And so there'll there'll be a, a control center there for all the robotics. Uh, initially, with ESA for the activation of the international HAB module. Uh, we'll have a control center up and running over in, I believe it's going to be in Germany. Uh, the Japanese are supplying a lot of components associated with the IHAB, a lot of the thermal control systems, a lot of the environmental control systems. So uh, they plan to operate out of SCUBA, uh, where they operate uh, you know, the, the GEM module uh, today on ISS. And so JAXA will be tied into ESA, uh, and then ESA will be tied into the control center, and so, and then with Canada, and so we'll have kind of an, in, you know, not as an extensive, uh, you know, kind of around the globe control center architect, uh, but when when things get critical and you're doing dynamic operations, we'll fully staff these these control centers up. We'll have uh, the MCC with a lead flight director, and kind of during those times, kind of act like we do on ISS. So that's the plans we have right now, and uh, I think that's how we'll, we'll end up going forward. All right. Now, now, uh, Laura, you're um, coming from the Orion program uh, earlier in your career. Can you talk about how Gateway, the Gateway program is talking to the folks in the Orion program in terms of the hardware development, in terms of the operations, just, just uh, thinking about doing things jointly uh, for when Orion arrives at Gateway? Sure. Yeah, um, we we use the term cross program integration, um, right? Not only with Orion, but with uh, HLS, the lander as well. Um, and it really happens at all levels of our organization. Um, I mean, it starts kind of at the program management level. Um, Dan and I, you know, are in constant communication with our counterparts in Orion, um, Howard Hugh and. Uh, Lisa Watson Morgan over in Lander, and so we communicate frequently um, at our systems engineering and integration level. They are constantly communicating with one another. Uh, we actually have established processes where we have representatives on each other's control boards, um, so we're always aware of what's happening on the other side of the interface. Um, so a lot of it is is just about communication. Um, but then we also make sure things are, are clearly documented so, you know, we can't have any miscommunication. So we start with things like ground rules and assumptions where we write down things like Gateway does this, Orion does this, HLS does that. Um, we codify it in what we call interface requirements documents so it's clear there. Um, and then we drive all of that down into our system specifications. Um, and eventually interface control documents. And it just the lower level you go, the more and more detailed it gets um, about how you interface between one element and the other. Um, for us, a lot of that physical integration is done through our docking ports. 
Um, so as long as we have, uh, we do have an international standard for that docking port that is between those elements, um, and so that controls things like how data flows, power flows, fluid flows um, through that physical interface. So, so there's a lot that goes into cross-program integration all the way from, you know, the technical engineering up to just good program project management and making sure we're, we're constantly communicating with, with one another. Hmm. Now, Laura... You know, one thing, that, Gary... Oh, uh, go well, ahead. You know, it, no, it's just to, to add on to that. Um, you know, the, the, the big picture is we are relying on each other, right? So hmm. when we first fly up, uh, you know, in the early stages of Gateway and, and Orion comes up, we are, we are basically dependent on their environmental control system uh, that will extend out into the habitable volume of the Gateway. Um, and then, then that's for, let's say, the 30-day mission. But when we get into the 60-day mission, the 90-day mission, that role kind of reverses. We are, we are thinking we're going to put Orion in somewhat of a dormancy mode and then have the gateway critical systems take over the functions that Orion was doing on the, on the earlier flights. Uh, the same thing with, uh, with the lander, lander team. We are, we are going to work with those folks, uh, Lisa and her team, to really understand their logistics needs and and fly the suits up with the logistics and, and, and take the burden off of, of what they think they need to launch, I'll say, even with the Orion. When they go fly, if we can pre-position food, pre-position some equipment, pre-position utilization, even the utilization that might go down to the surface of the moon on the lander, uh, we're, we're going to work as a, a kind of a, a three-program triad uh, to integrate that and, and make it all uh, look seamless. So, um, like I said, we are, we are interfaces are one thing, but uh, our reliance on each other is growing uh, daily, quite honestly. And I think that's a great thing. It, it keeps our, our systems uh, working together versus uh, overburdened on uh, individual systems. That sounds very big, and, and I think a part of this here, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, what I'm getting a sense of, you've, you've used this word before, uh, flexibility. The idea to, to kind of adapt to maybe how the mission changes or maybe there's something interesting at a different part of the moon that you want to change and, and go to. Is there a certain amount of flexibility when it comes to how surface missions change? Um, you, you know, who, who knows what Artemis is going to bring in the future? It could, be, it could be habitat so we can figure out how people can live and work on the moon for longer periods of time. It could be rovers. It could be robots. It could be a number of different things. Um, is there a certain amount of flexibility for Gateway to fold into that and stage some of these things uh, for whatever may come in the future? Yeah, we I, we primarily in the, in that role with the, some of the surface systems. Uh, you know, they're going to go down, uh, but I on their own with their own landers hmm. and, and set up. Uh, obviously, the crew that will go will probably aggregate through Gateway and then go down with the lander and you know and and, and get in and perform some of the, of the habitation system functions that they'll do there. Uh, but we are setting ourselves up again for not only a lander but additional assets that are on the moon as a comm relay station. And so, uh, different pieces off the moon will send their signals back through back through Gateway and then we'll bent pipe those back to the Earth. And so. I see that as a major, major advantage. And the other thing that we talked about a little bit earlier is that uh, with our solar electric uh, propulsion capability, uh, we are able to move, maneuver the gateway to basically any orientation we need to, to, to reach different surfaces of the moon. And so 
while that's not in the initial plans uh, on, on different excursions, uh, the gateway that we're building initially will have that capability. Uh, and then Laura talked about uh, we have a, a refueling capability with the spree and most likely on the back end of the power and propulsion element. And so we can restockpile um, the propellants and the xenon that's required to make the solar electric power operate uh, for, the, for the long haul. We're, we've got a design life of 15 years for the gateway. Uh, we, you'll, you'll see we're going to be performing you know, robotic change-outs of components. Uh, but as long as we can uh, maintain the systems, uh, we have the refueling capability. Uh, I, I see our, our ability to extend beyond 15 years uh, Kind of like in the, in the light of what the ISS has done, right? It's initial 15 years, and mm-hmm. here we are, 20 years uh, permanently crewed. So, <laughs> and Gary, awesome. I, the other thing Gateway brings to the table is, uh, you know, not only support for the lunar surface missions, but Mars forward as well, right? As, a, as an orbiting platform out there, we can be part of the um, of proving the technologies and the resources that we would need um, for long-duration deep space transport um, for a Mars mission. So, so that could be a future use for the Gateway as well. I love it. And, and um, Dan and Laura, you both described uh, a little bit about the model for Gateway, just how we're putting together this program and constructing it with international partners. There's this commercial element as well. So, so Laura, can you talk about the, the commercial side of things and how, how business for the Gateway program is done a little differently? Sure, yeah, you know, again, we've talked about how diverse uh, the Gateway team is. So, you know, not only do we have ISS and and Orion expertise, but we also have team members that came from commercial crew. Um, So, we, you know, our agencies learned a lot about commercial partnerships and and what that means and um, roles and responsibilities and accountabilities and driving requirements. And so we've really tried to take a lot of what the commercial cargo and crew programs have learned um, to heart in the Gateway program and allow our commercial partners and, and our contractors as much flexibility as we can give them um, in their design space. Um, but it's it's a real balance, right, because we can't give them complete autonomy because ultimately they have to all come together and we have to plug this thing together like a Lego and it has to work on orbit, right? So we can't um, the team is constantly looking for the right way to, to give them the flexibility that they need um, and minimize impacts, but, to, but find the very specific things we need to um, require of them to make sure that it operates as it should when it's on orbit. Hmm. You know, it's- yeah, but you know it, right, Gary, that, like Max R, right? That's, uh, geez, we, the, the, that team was selected. They have, I think, 80 of their 1300 bus satellites in orbit right and so we saw that as a as a tremendous way to to capture that uh, that commercial market there and and utilize what they've learned and you know like i said they're the the primary source of uh, our power and our propulsion and so we're again there's just tremendous heritage there our halo module kind of born out of uh, a commercial aspect of the next step right where we had several commercial companies out there uh, kind of uh, coming up with uh, their ideas about how we should build a, a, a habitation module, and we selected one of those uh, from that, uh, be it be it Northrop Grumman. The logistics supply services out of the Kennedy Space Center is heavily leveraging uh, the commercial cargo uh, program that we have uh, in the ISS program. Very, very similar. Uh, basically, 
your to your UPS kind of truck thing. Here's the, here's the cargo that we want delivered, and you provide the services. We're going to turn it over to you. We'll see you at the moon with our cargo, and so that has worked well. Laura mentioned we're we're building the EVA suit in house uh, for the first initial mission, and then we we plan to really open that up to uh, I'll say numerous. Uh, potential commercial providers uh, to, to to produce the follow-on suits, and so we're going through uh, that discussion right now. But I, I see even the EVA suits uh, maybe tending toward this path as well along the commercial side. Dan, we're coming up on 20 years of continuous human presence on the space station. There's a lot that we've learned from that vehicle just so much in the way that even business is done and it sounds like just from the some of the elements you're talking about here they're very much informing gateway and some of our future plans can you talk about just the the international space station and how how it kind of laid the foundation for what we are discussing today yeah sure you know there's a there's a technical aspect of lessons learned and there's somewhat of a political aspect of lessons learned there as well uh, maybe the political first, right? Uh, working working with our international partners, um, we have embedded them in every one of our teams, and so there's no separate kind of the U.S. is doing its thing, and then we bring in the international partners when we hold meetings. They are actually active members of all of our control boards, and they they have a seat at the table, a board member. Um, we make key decisions not only of our elements that we're working on within the U.S., but also, you know, in relationship to the hardware that they're developing. I I think that has really streamlined uh, some of the integration that we have going, and and I think it keeps the international partners uh, that much more well-informed. And I tell you, the other thing kind of politically is uh, we realized early on that early utilization on ISS really paid a lot of dividends. Uh, Those countries could show... Even though their main elements weren't on board the ISS early, the payloads that they had up there, they could show their constituents, their stakeholders, uh, that they are part of the ISS program. So we have folded in, and I, I, I just I can't tell you the, what a tremendous job I think our team has done, uh, namely Dina Cantella and working with not only the, the NASA research communities, but all the international partners uh, of just selecting those payloads internationally and weaving in our NASA priorities. And uh, I just see that as a, as a, a key way to get early research going and uh, some early return for, the, like I said, those stakeholders. You know, if I think about the, some of the program or technical stuff, we, we have embedded our operations team uh, into a lot of our early development, right? I, that may not have been the case early on in, in ISS. Uh, they are right there with us. Um, you know, we've learned, you know, some some reliability, some redundancy, some fault, you know, maintainability, how to how to how to really embed the operations team into the actual design of the hardware. So I think that's that's one of the key areas that uh, we're trying to apply on a daily basis. Unbelievable. Laura, this is such an exciting time. We're talking about this platform around the moon. We're talking about people putting people on that platform and then those people are going to go down to the surface of the moon and put boot prints on the surface once again. Can you tell me what excites you about this whole thing? Oh, gosh, you know, it's um, I, it, it's funny. You can get so into the grind of our job every day. You, it, it's good every now and then to step back and just look at what it is we're doing and how exciting it 
is, and and I get remembered of that every time we fly a mission. I was lucky enough to be a part of Orion's EFT-1 in 2014, and, and I'll remember that day forever because basically the world stood still, not only in here in the United States but globally. And, and you saw it happen again with the SpaceX launch to space station several weeks ago. So, you know, I think what inspires me almost the most is that we inspire the world, and they they watch what we do, and they're excited by what we do. So um, the fact that we can get a platform out there and be sustained and um, continue to push forward and, and help, you know, our global community move into – you know, deep space is just a really exciting thing, and I, I really love to turn and watch how the, how the world reacts to what it is that we do every day. Such an exciting time. Dan and Laura, thank you so much, both of you, for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. I learned so much just about what this is, and honestly, it got me really excited for what's to come. I appreciate both your time. All right. Thank you very much, Gary. Have a great day. Thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dan Hartman and Laura Kearney today and learned a little bit about the Gateway program. It's folded into what's called the Artemis program, and you can check out Gateway and everything that goes with Artemis at nasa.gov Artemis. If you want to know more about uh, just the Artemis program, we've done a couple episodes on it. At Houston, we have a podcast. Go to nasa.gov slash podcasts to learn more. You can click on us at Houston, we have a podcast. Listen to any of our episodes in no particular order. There's a few of them on Artemis uh, and Orion and a lot of uh, different elements of the mission and the program itself. Check them all out. And again, no particular order. There's also a few other podcasts you can check out all across NASA. You can find them there, nasa.gov slash podcasts. If you like to talk to us at Houston, we have a podcast. We're on the social media pages of the NASA Johnson Space Center, uh, pages of all of the social media sites like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. You can use the hashtag AskNASA on any one of those sites uh, and uh, say a question or submit an idea. Just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston, we have a podcast. This episode was recorded on July 9th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norma Moran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, and Isidro Reyna. Thanks again to Dan Hartman and Laura Kearney for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and some feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and tell us what you think. We'll be back next week.